Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, Marshall Mining, or Militarism and Extraction. Our guest is Daniel Selwyn, a researcher and educator with the London Mining Network, an alliance of 21 organizations working to expose human rights abuses and environmental crimes committed by mining companies based in London and campaigning for social justice and the ecological integrity of the planet. Daniel Selwyn recently authored a report called Marshall Mining, Resisting Extractivism and War Together. Daniel Selwyn, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. So, so militarism is, is both where the money is that the environment needs and a leading destroyer of the natural environment, isn't it? Yeah, precisely. Um, so the report is basically looking at this, this cycle, this continuum of violence that links the global arms trade, militarism, particularly British military operations and bases around the world with um, extractive operations. So London-based mining companies and is both making the sort of connection in terms of how um, mining makes war possible. Um, so without aluminium, copper, cobalt, platinum, rare earth elements, titanium, tungsten, all of these natural resources that are extracted from the earth, without these, we wouldn't be able to build nuclear submarines or drones or aircraft carriers. So that was one of the key points of the article that the report was trying to make, is that Without mining, war doesn't become possible because every piece of military equipment that then goes on um, to be used in conflict zones from Yemen to Palestine to Afghanistan, those would not um, be able to be assembled without a huge amount of ecological devastation and social destruction that happens through mining. So Marshall Mining is essentially making the connection that mining makes war possible, but on the other side, war makes mining possible as well. And that in many of the communities and social movements that London Mining Network works with, from Colombia and Brazil to Eritrea and South Africa to Indonesia and the Philippines, they know very intimately that the extraction of natural resources from their lands wouldn't be possible without military force or strategies. Um, From forced invasions of land, dispossessions of land. Um, So essentially one of the main um, purposes of the report is to link um, these issues together, even though that they're, they are already linked by, by, by communities that are experiencing the brunt of both extractivism and militarism, but particularly for social movements in the UK, where I'm based, and in London, to see that um, these industries are inherently interconnected, so they need to be resisted as such as well. Uh, a wonderful project to be taking on. Uh, it seems the places that have the wars uh, are, are largely not the places that make the weapons, but some of them are the places that have the raw materials that are extracted to construct mm-hmm. the weapons, right? What are, what are some examples, and what are some examples you've already mentioned of, of some of these materials, mm. these minerals? So there's, a, there's a section in the report which is a kind of counter-mapping exercise in order to kind of make, make these networks of domination visible. So it both it has a key that links together where mining companies, London-based mining companies are operating, and where British military bases and operations are happening as well. So, for example, that helps us to see that 
the mining that Glencore or Anglo-American BHP Rio Tinto are doing in places like Colombia or Bolivia or Chile or Mexico is linked or would, is, is facilitated by British military bases that take up a sixth of the landmass in places like Belize, as well as in the Falklands Islands. We see British mining happening, massive concentrations in Southern Africa, lots in East Africa and West Africa, which is also, of course, being facilitated by British military bases in Kenya and wars in Somalia and in Mali. And the same you see with places in um, Southeast Asia, so Philippines and Indonesia, you have British military bases in Singapore and Brunei. So when you see these on the maps, we see that these these are all interconnected with one another um, and ways in which the resources that are being extracted from those from those regions, from Africa, from Latin America, from Asia, are then um, reapplied um, into these pieces of military equipment, which then go to dispossess more communities and expand extractive warfare around the world. The report that we're discussing, uh, Marshall Mining, can be found at londonmininetwork.org, and we will put a link up at talknationradio.org. Daniel Selwyn, is, is London the worst offender, the worst concentration of these militarized mining companies, or is London just where you happen to be based? London's definitely a global capital um, for for the mine for the mining industry. Obviously, there are other there are other centres like like Toronto, um, other places in the US. But London essentially is where a lot a lot of these mining companies um, congregate. Um, it's where a lot of the sort of regulating bodies um, exist that both have the London Stock Exchange and then a secondary alternative investment market. Where you'll have a lot of very sort of new mining companies that are, that set up with a lot less regulation um, on on top of them, and of course London's also centre of the global arms trade as well. So Britain exports fourteen billion dollars um, or, or pounds worth of military equipment a year, and that's the second highest of any country. Um, so I don't think that those things are are merely coincidental. I do the report makes a quite clear argument that London operates as a kind of global capital of organized violence through the London Stock Exchange, through the multinational mining companies that are based there, like Glencore, Rio Tinto, BHP, Anglo-American that I've already mentioned, also through these, all of these new sort of insurgent and newer mining companies um, that are very much at the forefront of exploration um, and drilling and land dispossessions um, across the global south as well as also being a center for the arms trade and the, and the finance industry. So I do think, yeah, if you look at most or many instances, yeah, if not most instances of militarized extraction or conflict that are happening around the world, if Britain or London isn't directly involved, you'll usually see if you start to follow the money that it circulates through the city of London eventually. Of course, I ask because I live in the United States, and it's rare to find any aspect of militarism in which the United States is not uh, the worst. <laughs> there's a there's precisely, e- yeah. <laughs> there, there's even ca- companies in the in your report uh, that are engaged in mining the ocean floor, which is an outrage in itself. Mm. And you and mm-hmm. you say in the report that UK Seabed Resources is a wholly owned subsidiary of the world's largest mm-hmm. weapons company, Lockheed Martin, which is of course based uh, mm-hmm. right nearby uh, here where I live so the US mm-hmm. is not totally off the hook uh, in this regard of right? course not <laughs> and I mean I mean that goes I mean between the the 
interoperability between British and American military establishments. Um, so a lot of the military bases that are mentioned in the report that are British military bases from the Chagos Islands in the Indian Ocean to the Ascension Islands in the Atlantic Ocean, these are also essentially American military bases. Um, so we, when we're talking about British imperialism and British cap- capitalism, it's very, yeah, very rarely um, detached or distinct from American interests as well. As well. One, and also the other, another example that, that is mentioned in the port is, of course, is Freeport McMorrin, which is an American mining company, which up until recently, alongside Rio Tinto, the British mining company, um, uh, well, Freeport McMorrin is still operating the Grassberg um, mine in, in West Papua. There's extreme military repression um, taking place in one of the biggest um, copper gold mines in the world. The the report, Daniel, focuses on on all variety of minerals, uh, but not so much on oil and gas. Uh, and I've seen mm. fairly similar reports that focus uh, entirely on oil and gas, which is what we see mm-hmm. militarized mining happening in, in Canada and in mm. North America. It could maybe these two efforts join forces? They seem very, very much related. Absolutely. Well, well, they have to, um, and they are they are in- inherently connected. I guess because London Mining Network focuses specifically on mining, but extractivism broadly, um, which is what the report focuses on as, as as a structure, is obviously targeted towards the fossil fuel industry as well. But I think that does point to there's been has been an um, increasing and. For, for good reasons, a more broader acknowledgement within within anti-war and anti-militarist movements of um, of the ecological devastation and destruction of war, and but the primary focus there, to, to me at least, um, see, has seemed to be focusing on on fossil fuels and and, and carbon emissions. Um, but I think what this report tried to add to that discussion and to build on top of it is that from the moment of extraction of all these other minerals that go into making military equipment um war is already always already a climate and ecological catastrophe um not just at the moment in which these weapons are deployed um and all the carbon emissions and all the um, environmental devastation that's left in the wake of war from the moment in which these minerals are extracted to make military equipment Warfare and mining are already climate catastrophes that need to be resisted as as, as interchangeable and interconnected. Uh, very well said. Uh, shocking figure in the report. You write that London's mining giants are involved in at least 83 cases of conflict surrounding extractive operations. 83 right mm. now. Is is that is that real? So yeah, this is another brilliant uh, counter cartography or counter mapping by the Environmental Justice Atlas. Um, and they've they've re- registered at least eighty three um, either legacies of um, of mining operations involving involving these um, four major uh, London mining companies that I've already mentioned, or ongoing operations. And the report um, can't go into all eighty three of those, but does give five detailed um, profiles of um, areas and mining operations where there's been an extreme amount of military um, repression in the prelude and in the operation of, of, of the mining. So that is both for um, Lundman's um, mass- uh, involvement in the Marikana massacres in South Africa for the extraction of platinum, um, Rio Tinto in West Papua, in Madagascar and in Bougainville, 
and also to the Glen Glencore in the Democratic Republic of Congo for the extraction of cobalt. So yeah, there there are many of these instances all over the world. Many of them won't be reported on uh, Environmental Justice Atlas. Um, so there are many that we that we probably won't won't know about. And of course, even many of these smaller mining companies that will be involved in things that we won't won't know about. So eighty three is probably unfortunately a, con- a conservative estimate for the spread, the geographical um, spread of of violence that London London through its mining and arms industries perpetrates around the world. What what role, if any, do you think uh, potential mining interests have played in the reluctance of the U.S. government and NATO uh, to get the heck out of Afghanistan for nearly 20 years now? I don't know much about um, mining, mining in Afghanistan and the kind of um, resources that are being extracted there, unfortunately. And I'm, during for the report, I was actually trying to find out more information about that, but found found the information quite sparse. So I would be very interested if people have information, um, particularly about resource extraction in Afghanistan, um, to, to, yeah, to find out and to hear more about that. To look broader, not just at Afghanistan, but increasing British military intervention in Mali, for example, or in Somalia, um, or British wars in, even in, in Pakistan, in Yemen. There are, there are clear uh, links to um, mining interests in Mali, for example, central in um, for gold extraction, but also there's new British mining companies that are setting up aggressive, in their own words, aggressively exploring and developing lithium mining projects. Um, other big gold mining companies in Mali, same for oil and gas extraction in Somalia. So I think usually these two things do... Um, seem to go hand in hand with one another but even when they don't when you look at um this geostrategic importance that places like afghanistan have or other countries for example oman where there isn't any direct um resource um or mineral extraction taking place but a huge amount of fossil fuel extraction um that is happening where britain has a massive military base and an expanding military presence in oman and the same for mali you do you do see um, British mining companies that are profiting from um, and arriving in the wake of these military interventions if they're not there in the prelude to them. One of the one of the aspects uh, interlocking these industries that you do cover uh, very well in the report is the <laughs> is the revolving doors and the the shared mm. stockholders uh, and the revolving doors including uh, government. I'm sure. Um, can you talk about mm. how these how these mining and military companies uh, uh, share human beings? Sure. That's yeah. One one of one of the key entanglements between these industries is is on the level of of personnel. So there is there's a graphic in the report which shows the kind of revolving door between the mining and arms industry, including executives who sit both on the board of Anglo American and Lock and Lockheed Martin or of BAE Systems, the biggest British arms company. But then, like you said, also in the highest levels of government, so the Defence Board, which is the um, highest board within the UK Ministry of Defence, is chaired by a former executive of Rio Tinto. And there's another current Rio Tinto board member on um, who chairs the Defence Audit Committee of the Ministry of Defence. So you have a high, basically mining executives in very high um, high profile and powerful positions within the British military establishment. And that is 
has a much longer genealogy of wealth, uh, particularly with Rio Tinto. And that kind of goes into the parts of the report on the colonial history of these companies, where with Rio Tinto, for example, it expanded globally under the chairmanship of um, Auckland Geddes, who was at the heart of the British military establishment, and then became even more integral to um, the British military and British imperialism through its um, operation of the Rusting uranium mine in Namibia, which was at the time um, occupied by apartheid South African forces. And that was essentially the closest that um, Britain came to controlling its own uranium supply and being able to develop and service um, it, Britain's nuclear arsenal. Um, so I think when we look at the kind of um, military establishment and the entanglement there with mining executives and the arms trade, it goes through this much um, longer history of British imperialism around the world and colonialism, um, where these industries or these sectors have never really operated independently from one another, even if they may have had um, antagonistic um, relationships at, at one moment or another. Um, they've usually um, operated interdependently um, in, or in order to strengthen each other's um, interests, ultimately. And that is something that is ongoing today, and we can see through that revolving door. We're speaking with Daniel Selwyn of London Mining Network. You can see londonminingnetwork.org. The report gives a lot of uh, background on the colonial and military history of these companies. Uh, you even talk about uh, European-led genocides of indigenous peoples. Uh, between 1492 mm -hmm. and 1610, uh, you say 90% uh, were eliminated uh, and that the result actually cooled planet Earth. Can you talk about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think this, this, is, this is really fundamental in many ways thinking about how, how we've got to the place that we are today with these multiple um, catastrophes and calamities of climate, um, of, of, of ecology, of um, the biophysical processes of the world, and that these haven't just materialized overnight. They have this um, long, um, long genealogy in, in colonial and imperial warfare. And the... the Black abolitionists and indigenous decolonial scholars and social movements that I've learned most of this from, um, the central um, uh, or originary moment of, of this of this new climate changed world isn't with the industrial revolution um, in the 18th century, but with um, with the genocides of the indigenous peoples of the Americas and um, the beginning of European colonial expansions to the shores of West Africa from um, the mid-15th century, so from 1441 onwards. And I think it's also a reminder that, well, I think by that um, very sort of chilling statistic of um, the Holocaust of the Americas' indigenous peoples, um, 60 million indigenous peoples that were living in the Americas before um, the invasions of Col by Columbus and Europe, um, which was reduced by, by 90%. And as you said, um, and as the report says, and this wasn't isn't obviously my research, um, but as research research by others that is referenced in the report, that so much formerly cultivated land was reclaimed by nature, which then subsequently sequestered and absorbed so much carbon from the air that it actually led to a little ice age. Um, so the lowest point of um, carbon particles per per million in the air in, in sort of the last ten thousand 
years, I think, um, was in 1610 when this little ice age occurred. And it's from that moment onwards, from that moment in which genocides registered in geological time, um, literally within, within, within the Earth's geology, it's from that moment onwards that carbon emissions have only, have only, have only risen since then. And I think why that is particularly important when we're thinking about, um, these mining companies like BHP, Anglo American, Rio Tinto, Glencore, is to show that none of them um, suddenly transformed into multi-billion-dollar transnational corporations overnight. Um, that there's no such thing as this innocent accumulation of billions of dollars of wealth. It comes on the back of this cumulative social and ecological harm and violence um, that has given given them the ability to accumulate that amount of, of profit through through this plunder and theft that is ongoing. Um, so throughout um, or despite their attempts to greenwash their reputations or market themselves as sort of progressive um, or technological saviors who are going to usher in this new green industrial revolution and fully automated, electrified, decarbonized economies, I think when we look to this history, we can remind ourselves that they are the arsonists who have incinerated the planet, no matter much, how much they might try, and now portray themselves as the firefighters with the solutions. Um, and I think that is something that should um, provide social movements with a lot of um, yeah, affirmation within our own arsenals to resist the narratives that these mining companies push, um, that it is the local communities who are resisting the ecological and social violence of mining who are somehow um, unsustainable or behind and backward to ideas of modernity and progress when in fact it is these mining companies as well as the arms industry and the military who have ushered in this climate-changed world who are the primary architects of, of the climate and ecological crisis and thus should have no legitimacy or authority to be um, the ones to make come up with the solutions that are necessary. The the report is excellent on all variety of greenwashing that's going on, uh, rather than rethinking uh, the fundamental approach. Um, what do you think uh, activists, organizations that want to work for climate justice uh, and against climate collapse and against war, uh, should take away? What can we? What policies do we need to focus on changing? What physical locations, if any, do we need to, to target with nonviolent uh, activism uh, mm. as a result of this knowledge? Mm. Well, I guess it's, it's, I think this information can, can help in terms of seeing, seeing where, where we can build coalitions and alliances or where our movements um, or the, our ecology of movements can, can intersect. And in a sense, going back to what you're saying on sort of on, on the greenwashing, I think sometimes the climate and environmental movement can get itself into very precarious and dangerous terrain when it ends itself or, yes, yeah, celebrating um, the kind of greenwashing within the military or within these mining companies or somehow seeing lithium-ion battery tanks or solar-powered drones as some kind of climate victory. Um, but when we see that, all of these industries of organized violence intersect. Um, that means our struggles um, and resistance to them intersect in all of these ways as well. So I think that can help us to build very broad coalitional, transnational and relational movements to one another 
Um, and I think, again, using the maps or the revolving doors, we see um, where a lot of these um, interests intersect. We see where mining operations are happening that are going, um, for example, with rare earth elements. There's new London mining companies um, called Rainbow Rare Earths and, and Kango Resources, which are in the prospect or um, in, have the momentum to be building up mines in Burundi and in Malawi who have already been in advanced negotiations with the U.S. Defense Department because of the geostrategic importance of rare earth elements due to their con overwhelming concentration in China and also their very um, strategic importance to, um, to military equipment. And at the same time, we see that a lot of the arms companies that are um, buying all of these minerals and assembling them into making weapons and technologies of destruction and surveillance, they are the same companies that are profiting from militarizing and building border infrastructure um, to prevent people um, from who are fleeing the ecological disasters and wars that they are helping to create, prevent them from finding safe routes of passage to safety. So in that essence, when you can start to see where all of these issues intersect, I think that they can help us um, realize that the climate justice movement, global climate justice movement, all, is always already has to be an anti-war and anti-militarist movement in the same instance that it has to be um, an anti-borders and migrant justice um, movement as well. Um, and I think what that looks like will be different in every every location where I hope people will read this report and find find generative ways to use that information to support um, their social movement work or other organizing um, uh, that they that they might be doing. And I hope that information is left in this kind of generative rather than prescriptive form for for what happens next. But I think um, what it can do is to show us the ways in which our struggles are shared and indivisible, um, and also targeting those points, um, nodal points, where a lot of these interests intersect as hopefully quite quite strategic ones. Daniel Selwyn, with just about one minute left, uh, I'm very encouraged by your organization that's focused on mining and environmental destruction, putting out a report and saying what you just said about the need to be anti-war. That would be a very rare occurrence uh, for any environmental uh, directed organization here in the United States. Uh, do, do you run into similar resistance in Britain and elsewhere uh, of environmentalists being willing to be anti-war? Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, that's, it's an interesting point because I think that comes to a acknowledgement that environmentalism is not this inherently progressive or transgressive um, political ideology, it can lend itself just as well to a kind of blood and soil eco-fascism as it must to a sort of generally liberatory um, climate justice um, movement, global climate justice movement. But I think for us um, at London Mining Network, why this um, report was is so timely and urgent is because we work directly and we're fortunate and privileged to work directly with communities on the front lines of resource extraction from Colombia um, and Brazil to Eritrea and South Africa, Philippines, Indonesia, all over the world who don't experience the violence and oppression of the state, military and police as separate to the violence and oppression of British um, right. corporate um, mining industry. Um, so I think when we take leadership 
from the struggles of frontline communities in the global south, uh, as well as racialized and indigenous communities in the global north. I think that gives um, our movements a lot, uh, particularly the environment and the climate movement, a lot of work to do, a huge amount of work to do, but it's one that work that we shouldn't shouldn't be shying away from we'll, because we'll, it's, it's so urgent to we'll, our planetary survival. We'll have to leave it on that note. Daniel Selwyn of London Mining Network, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.